Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek, and I am very lucky and grateful to be joined by returning champion, the pride of Missouri State University, Gene Bajalon, associate professor at Missouri State, regular guest on an array of topics. Uh, he is going to help us today unpack Sunday's Turkish election, uh, which may be followed by a runoff. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but Gene, thank you so much for for coming on the show again. Thank you so much for inviting me, Derek. It's always a pleasure to be here, even if I am your second choice. But you know, I won't take that. <laughs> I won't take oh, that man. to heart. Pulling, pulling the curtain back here. Uh, no, Gene is is saving our bacon here. So uh, I, I have to say thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this on short. No, no, notice. it's my. It's uh, all my. It's all my pleasure. All my we, pleasure. Uh, we do appreciate it. So uh, let's get right into it. We always hear, it seems like uh, every four years here in the U.S., or, or now it's really every two years because we're counting congressional elections, that this election is the most important election of our lifetimes. It's the most important election in, in history. Gene, why is Sunday's Turkish election the most important election of our lifetime? What is going on? What are the stakes and sure. talk a little bit about the candidates, about uh, in particular, let's focus on the presidential for now. Talk about the two main candidates, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, and his challenger, Kemal Kılıç Daroğlu. Sure. So May the 14th is election day in Turkey. It's a very important symbolic day in Turkish politics. May the 14th uh, was the day in which the election that ousted the party of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk from office and ushered in multi-party politics, as it were, in uh, Turkey in 1950. Uh, so it's a, like a very symbolic day. But what makes this election very significant is that really for the first time in maybe two decades, the opposition groups, those the, the various political parties and political forces that are arrayed against uh, the ruling Justice and Development Party that was elected in 2002, and its leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who, of course, uh, served as the country's prime minister before uh, becoming president and ultimately changing the Turkish constitutional system to uh, in 2017 to create a new political order with a very strong executive presidency. And you know, he was, uh, he was elected, uh, he's been elected president. There has not been a, a serious challenge to his, uh, him as, as president. But this time round, polling is not looking great for Erdogan. Uh, it looks like he is going to, uh, have a tough time keeping on a hold of his job, uh, at least if the, polls are to believe. So it looks like, or at least for those in the opposition who are optimistic about the possibilities of the future, it looks like for the first time in a long time that Erdogan may lose an election. His party, the Justice and Development Party, has had major setbacks in the past. Its parliamentary dominance has declined over the years, although with the shift to a presidential system, that is less important these days. Uh, and also they've had major defeats in important municipal elections, most notably their loss of Istanbul and Ankara, which uh, Istanbul was very important for the rise of the AKP. It was where 
Erdogan served as uh, mayor. It was an important base of power. Uh, so the AKP has had defeats, but Erdogan himself has not really faced any major defeats. And so, uh, you know, in the last presidential election, you know, he defeated his opponents handedly. And, you know, it looks like this time uh, the story is a little bit di- different. So we have at least what looks on paper to be a tight election. Now, of course, there's a whole different conversation about whether this, how fair this election will be, whether there'll be, you know, some kind of voter fraud campaign. I was reading this morning in the Turkish press, you know, there's been statements from Erdogan saying that, you know, if things don't go his way, he's going to call on his supporters to go to the streets, just like they did in response to the attempted 2016 coup. You know, there's a lot of heat around this election. Uh, There's been... Um, the the main opposition candidate, uh, Kemal Kilicdaoglu, you know, there was a new story about him having to wear a bulletproof vest. There have been attacks on opposition rallies. So it's a, it, it's a, as we might say, a spicy election. Nothing particularly new in Turkish politics. You know, there have been all, you know, go back in the 70s, someone tried to kill Bülent Ejevit, who was, uh, you know, a, uh, center-left politician who became prime minister in the 70s. There's always been some kind of political violence uh, associated with elections in Turkey. But, you know, the stakes are really high because Erdogan looks legitimately like he may be forced from office. And this will be a radical change because the AKP have been dominant in Turkish politics for two decades, Erdogan has been in charge of the country for longer than Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, um, the founder of the Turkish Republic. So we're kind of entering terra incognito in terms of the future. A lot of people are making predictions. You know, there are lots of points that people say on the side of the idea that, well, you know, if the election, Erdogan loses the election, he will have to go from office. They point to the vibrancy of Turkish civil, civil society. Uh, but on the other side, the more skeptical people are pointing out that the Justice and Development Party in their 20 years in office have managed to subjugate the state, the military, the police force, the judiciary uh, to their will and this is going to make it extremely difficult uh, for them to give up power or give them an opportunity to at least hang on in power. So there are arguments on both sides uh, about where, you know, where this could go if Erdogan, for example, loses. Uh, but I just, I, uh, I would not want to be taking a bet on this election either way, because it is, it does seem to be on a knife edge. And when it comes to the polling, you know, we, we're seeing polling, some of which is saying that Kilic Dağlu may even win in the first round of an election because the Turkish presidential system is one of those ones where you have multiple candidates. And then if no one gets 50% in the first round, it goes to a runoff against the uh, next two, which no doubt if that happens, that will be a further traumatizing and radicalizing experience. But um, one of the spoiler candidates, as it were, Muharrem uh, Inje, who was a previous presidential candidate backed by the opposition, he's dropped out of the race. What will be the different? Uh, you know, what difference it will make 
could make all the difference in a tight election, although his name is still on the ballot. So people might actually still just vote for him. So who might do a Ross Perot on the election, basically, you know, might Ross Perot it. Um, who knows? But it's really at a knife edge. I, uh, you know, most of my Turkish friends who I've been talking to, I mean, Obviously, they range from kind of liberal orientated to left of center people, uh, left wing people who are, who are, um, let's say anti Erdogan or Erdogan skeptic. You know, they're all in palpitations at the moment. There's hope amongst them that they might, there might be an end to Erdogan's rule, but there's also a kind of fear that this could mark a further shift away from sort of the democratic tradition in Turkey towards the more authoritarian tradition that exists in parallel to it. I want to actually talk a little bit more about that, about the the possibility of a uh, quote unquote free and fair election here and the, the potential for some, something to go wrong. But let's talk a little bit first about uh, Erdogan. As you mentioned, uh, you know, he's been ruling Turkey in one form or another for two decades now. Uh, over two decades, I guess, and uh, he has made a, a tremendous change in the Turkish political system it, it, simply with the the shift from a parliamentary focus to a presidential focused uh, system. Talk a little bit about, I don't want to do a post-mortem because obviously he could win or he could remain in power through whatever means, uh, but talk a little bit about his legacy over these last couple of decades and what is it that explains his weakness in this election i don't think it's just the opposition finally unifying because he's won first round you know 50 percent plus one victories as as president uh two times now so I, i don't think it's just that the opposition has its act together it's it seems to be more than that probably the economy's uh some portion of that but but what what can we say about Erdogan as we're, you know, here on the eve of the election? I mean, Erdogan is a kind of protean opportunist, as it were. And I don't mean it opportunist in a kind of normative sense. He, he is someone who has been able to, within his broad conservative framework, has been able to adapt to the political moment in Turkey. He comes out of a tradition of political Islam. He was the mayor of Istanbul in the 1990s as part of the Refa party, which was a, a, a an Islamist a party that briefly ruled Turkey before being ousted by the military. Erdogan himself uh, was put in jail for reciting a poem by Zia Gökalp uh, at a rally, which uh, it was a, a poem which had certain Islamist themes in it, even though Zia Gökalp is regarded as, uh, you know, a pioneer of Turkish nationalism by secular uh, Turks as uh, as well. So he represented, you know, a he, he comes out of this concern, uh, this Islamist tradition. But when the Refa party was closed down and, you know, a new political formation was uh, uh, created, he did not return to that tradition and instead set up the Justice and Development Party, which was a kind of rebranding of conservatism or Islamic, the Islamic version of conservatism that existed in Turkey. There was a kind of secular pro sort of 
cultural conservatism in Islam, uh, in Turkey that has been, you know, very powerful uh, in, in the country since the 1950s. But he created a political formation that was, as it were, representative of economic changes in Turkey, particularly the rise of the provincial middle classes and provincial uh, capitalists, what they call the Anatolian Tigers or or the Muslim Calvinists. These were uh, uh, elements of the provincial bourgeoisie that had been historically uh, disadvantaged vis-a-vis the Uh, the big business conglomerates that had close relations to the existing Kemalist secular nationalist establishment. Uh, these new groups had become wealthy due to the state reforms uh, um, implemented following the 1980 coup, the shift towards neoliberalism, uh, the tenure of Turget Özel, who was a kind of uh, a conservative neoliberal, And Erdogan kind of captured that and blended uh, this uh, a kind of economic liberalism uh, with a cultural conservatism and a lot of pro-democratic discourse uh, that sought to present the the IKP as being uh, not just economic liberalizers, not your traditional Islamic conservatives, but Uh, an, uh, but an equivalent of the German Christian Democrats, a political party that was going to pursue not only economic liberalization, but also political uh, liberalization that sought to get rid of the undemocratic uh, elements of Turkish politics, particularly the tutelage of the military uh, and the bureaucracy, the the complex of mafia and state groups, the so-called deep state, the idea, you know, he was, he was presenting himself as coming, uh, as basically pushing against that and pushing Turkey towards uh, a more democratic future. So his coalition at its core was closely tied up with this rising conservative Anatolian business class, but a business class that although conservative was heavily linked to the European economy through trade, through, uh, uh, through investment, et cetera, et cetera. So they were, uh, they, they were not opposed to, uh, opposed to the West. They weren't hardline anti-Westerners, as it were. And then around this, he was able to make cultural appeals to, you know, the lower classes in Turkey uh, and the culturally conservative elements in Turkey, in particular, The, uh, elements of the peasantry that had moved to the cities uh, in the 70s and 80s in particular, and bring in other elements of his, to the coalition. He uh, signaled a new approach to the Kurdish question, winning significant support amongst the Kurdish population. And he even attracted the support of liberals who saw the AKP as a vehicle through which the dominance of the state over society could be broken and Turkey could move forward to becoming a more fully realized liberal democracy, parliamentary uh, parliamentary democracy without these undemocratic uh, uh, elements in terms of the military and the bureaucracy, which had 
overturned governments in the past, orchestrated coups, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So he came to power as a kind of conservative reformer. He was very much appreciated by the, nine, uh, the United States during this period as he provided a kind of alternative model to, you know, the Taliban, uh, Al-Qaeda, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, he presented this moderate Islam that was both culturally conservative and close and uh, integrated into the systems of international uh, capitalism. I remember going to a talk, I think in 2011, where there was a speaker talking about Erdogan being a post-ideological Islamist, which people were very critical of that. But what they meant was that, oh, he's actually just, he's he's accepted capitalist neoliberal orthodoxy. Earlier iterations of Islamic uh, Islamic movements in Turkey had been far more um, populist in their approaches. Uh, Erdogan maintained that populist element. Part of the AKP's success, part of Erdogan's party's success, was that they were able to build on social networks that existed in communities. They were able to provide food, coal, you know, bread and butter things. When they be, when they got into power, they were able to provide services to parts of cities that were unable to, that had previously been denied running water, electricity. And then, you know, once they took over in office, they really came into power at like a perfect moment. There had been a profound economic and political crisis during the 1990s in Turkey, manifest in hyperinflation, a drying up of foreign investment, and endless coalition governments and political disorder and chaos. Uh, in the late 1990s, a coalition came to power, a very bizarre coalition, which was led by Bülent Ecevit, a veteran social democrat. Uh, and it, but also included the fascist party as well, the National Ac- Action Party. And, you know, un- under the pre- pressure from uh, international finance capital, there was a whole bunch of structural adjustment that took place. You know, this was orchestrated by Kemal Dervish, you know, a, a, a technocratic uh, figure, an individual who just died, actually, he, but who was very important in re- uh, uh, restructuring Turkish, the Turkish economy. And there was like very painful moments, but when the AKP came to power, they were able to basically enjoy the fruits of those reforms. And we saw like a kind of uh, a boom in Turkey uh, in, in, in the early, uh, in the 2000s, uh, which, you know, radically began radically transforming the urban landscape, the sociology of the country, which saw a huge construction boom, uh, and ben- the benefits of this construction boom going to uh, many elements of society that had been previously um, c- excluded from the fruits of modernization and reform. So we have this kind of liberal phase of Erdogan. And so in tandem with this, we have all this kind of, you know, democratization taking place, uh, the defanging uh, the you know moves to more more a more democratic uh, uh, Turkey, and this phase really lasts until I would say perhaps you know two thousand and nine two thousand and ten, 
And then we see a gradual, gradual shift away towards a more authoritarian uh, type of discourse. And then ultimately, after 2015, Erdogan does a kind of flip. He transforms himself from, you know, presenting himself as this liberalizing conservative reformer to being a nationalist. He brings in nationalists into his coalition, and we see a kind of new political coalition, one that is increasingly based around the, you know, figure of Erdogan, who at the beginning of the AKP period was definitely the leader and the main man, but was one of many important political figures. Uh, and in fact, some of the groups in the opposition, Ali Babajan and uh, David Olu, they were previously members of the AKP, had served in the AKP government, who were representatives of perhaps the liberal vision of the AKP in the early period. Th- th- they were basically sidelined from politics and eventually went into uh, uh, opposition. And in fact, the opposition, uh, at least from their perspective, they kind of want to restore that moment of liberalization in the 2000s, although, you know, that took place under very specific global and economic uh, circumstances. So, you know, you can't really go back. But there is a kind of restorationist ideal motivating some of those who have defected from the AKP uh, uh, to the opposition. So Erdogan was able to move with the times and secure his secure his base. But obviously, Turkey faces profound economic problems. You know, Turkey was able to kick the economic pain down the road after the 2008 economic crisis. But you can only delay that for so long. And, you know, there's a lot of things that have caused crisis, uh, caused a crisis in Turkey. Erdogan's economic policies, the increasingly unfavorable global economic environment, uh, Turkey's, you know, growing military commitments around, uh, uh, around the place, uh, around the Middle East and uh, in North Africa. Uh, so there's, a, a, you know, there's growing problems uh, in society. This is compounded by, you know, political problems as well. Uh, ongoing purges of institutions, especially after the failed 2016 coup. You know, the failed 2016 coup was, as Erdogan said, a gift from God because, you know, not only did they purge the military of those officers who had attempted to overthrow him, but it it provided a context for a complete purge of intellectuals and anybody who was seen as being against the Arkepe's line. Now, it's not total. The AKP are kind of arbitrary in how this applied. But for example, if you look at the intelligentsia, many have just left a, to go abroad. Uh, there's been a kind of brain drain. People have lost their jobs. Uh, it's, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of people have been charged on trumped up charges. So, you know, you have, you have a kind of increasingly toxic political atmosphere, uh, economic problems. And then, of course, this is being uh, compounded by allegations of corruption. You know, there's uh, there's often talk that the Minister of Interior, 
Suleiman Soylu, who is kind of seen as a potential heir to Erdogan, is basically a cocaine dealer. And there's all kinds of, uh, the, there was a mafia leader who fled to the Gulf and on YouTube was like giving all the, spilling all the tea on the kind of interactions they were having um, with uh, with government officials. You know, they're like, well, why do you think we have three flights a day from Caracas to Istanbul by Turkish Airlines? Like, what's that all about? It might not be three. It might just be one, but still one, one a day. I don't know. Uh, so you have all these kind of uh, things bubbling up. And then, of course, there's the earthquake, which... Yes, this is going to be my, my next question, because it feels like, particularly w- with respect to corruption, this was a, a major event, especially to happen so close to the election. But but yes, please continue. Yeah, so uh, the earthquake exposed the fragility of the AKP's developmentalist policy. So construction obviously was key to the AKP's success, building homes, providing uh, services, building hospitals, these kind of things. This obviously enriched construction moguls who were close uh, to the state, but also it won the support of the people who were benefiting from this construction you know, like you go to the suburbs of Istanbul and you see kind of high-rise buildings and people, are, you know, people from the West are like, oh, no, these are so ugly high-rise buildings, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're a person who is living in a shack on the edge of Istanbul with no running water or heat or electricity, and now you live in an apartment with all the modern conveniences, this like is like a unfathomable change that, you know, people really appreciated about the Justice and Development Party government, you know, they, the AKP used um, certain uh, uh, levers of power and state apparatus uh, and institutions to basically support this kind of construction boom. But of course, a lot of this became very opaque. And, you know, one of the factors that brought down the previous Turkish government was the 1999 Duzja earthquake, which was, you know, very costly on people and exposed the lack of earthquake preparedness. And in response, a whole new set of regulations and sort of taxes were levied f- precisely for earthquake prevention. But what has happened is, of course, uh, these regulations have been pretty much skirted in a lot of places. The uh, And... That was fine, so long as there wasn't an earthquake. But then an earthquake hit, and a lot of this came down. And the regions that were hit by the earthquake are traditional AKP strongholds. So this was a major blow to people. People were not initially very happy about the government's response. Initially, Erdogan was seemed to be more angry about, uh, you know, critical tweets about the government then actually getting involved in helping people. Uh, Erdogan has since, you know, asked for forgiveness from people and has ramped up state aid. So, you know, he may be able to resecure some of his base. Um, but, you know, some, some will have been alienated as well. We, we, we don't, we don't really know. So the earthquakes, you know, it forced the delay in the election first of all, because Turkey couldn't uh, hold an election under the conditions of an earthquake. And 
is kind of an X factor that helped at least propel the opposition to kind of give it morale uh, to push harder in this uh, election campaign. It became an issue that they could focus around, uh, focusing on the ineptness of the government response, the corruption that had led to this kind of shoddy construction. Shoddy construction, which, you know, uh, seismologists had been warning about. For, there's, a, there's a picture that was going around Turkish Twitter, which had, a, I don't know where exactly it was, but it had like a picture of a, one of the cities in Ana, uh, Anatolia that was hit by the earthquake. Everything is flattened except for the building of the Engineers Association because they built their building properly, right? Whereas other people uh, cut corners and uh, this kind of construction. And that is kind of endemic of the, you know, the corruption that existed within the uh, um within the construction sector which is always in every country a kind of wild west cowboy thing and this was this was something people were talking about in the 2000s when i worked in istanbul uh, uh uh i used to go down a street and there was a mosque a newly built mosque and one day i heard in my office a bang And when I came out to see what it was, the minaret of the mosque had been blown down by the wind and it had killed someone, right? So people were, you know, like there was this kind of, people were aware of some of this shoddy construction. I mean, perhaps they were a little stricter in Istanbul with the regulations than they were in uh, Ankara, but I just don't know what kind of human tragedy would, would hit if there was an earthquake in Istanbul today because there has been so much development. I don't know how well built some of that infrastructure that they've built is God knows how much this is, but we did see a lot of government buildings coming down during that crisis. So that kind of exposed the developmentalist model for a certain degree, because, you know, legitimately people did appreciate the changes that took place in Turkey uh, during this period. A lot of people were lifted into the middle class. Now you can say, well, that's partly because of reforms done in the economy before Erdogan came to power, which is certainly true. But, you know, Erdogan was the one in office when it happened. And so people gave him credit for it. And, you know, there is a there is a element of the population that is loyal to him. And that loyalty is reinforced with the party networks that they have, the informal networks, et cetera, et cetera. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Kilicdarolu. Um, what what can we say about him? Uh, his background. Were you surprised that he was the consensus candidate who emerged? And I know there was there was not consensus at first when he was announced uh, from the opposition. I, I was a little bit surprised. If I were running a, my crafting my ideal candidate against Erdogan, I'm not sure I would go with somebody who's older <laughs> and you know still kind of has this. Uh, feel of, of being linked to the old guard that mm-hmm. people wanted to get away from when they elected Erdogan in the first place. So I, I, I was a little bit surprised that it was him, but I'm curious what your, your thoughts are about Kilic Darolu. So I believe I, I have the receipts for this on Twitter somewhere, but I was actually like, oh, he's totally going to be the candidate. And the reason I thought this is because, you know, Turkish political leaders just never want to give up office. 
Uh, I mean, the previous leader of the JHP, uh, Dennis Baikal, he was like literally only ousted from office because he got caught doing sex acts with someone on tape that he shouldn't have been doing sex acts with. So uh, Kilish Dağlu is a kind of typical Turkish political leader. He'll stay in charge of the party despite losing, 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 losing. And, you know, at least in presentation, he is kind of the antithesis of Erdogan. He's kind of a soft-spoken individual. He has a kind of intellectual air. Um, he feels to me very much like a spiritual successor to Bülent Ecevit, who was a very influential Turkish social democratic uh, politician in Turkey, who was in fact... Uh, who in fact transformed the Republican People's Party, uh, the party of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, into a more explicitly social democratic party. This Republican pe- uh, People's Party, I should note, is not the same Republican People's Party. It is the kind of it was cre- it was created post 1982 after the political bans had been uh, implemented in the co- uh, country. So it's not a de- it's not a literal institutional successor to it but it really takes up that brand and you know early during Erdogan's reign in office for a kind of uh, accidental reason they emerged as the only opposition Um, you know Turkey had this 10% threshold Turkish politics was super divided in the early, uh, uh, in the late 90s. And the outcome was in the 2002 election, only two parties got past that threshold. Like Erdogan only really got 30%, although he, with that 30%, he got a massive majority. And the opposition that emerged was the JHP. And, and Turkey kind of settled down into this um, sort of more two dominant party system, at least for a while. And for this first period in office, the JHP were absolutely ineffectual opposition. They basically uh, attempted, uh, supported judicial moves to shut down the AKP. They were supportive of the military. Uh, they were hysterical about the, you know, the uh, 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 prospect of Abdullah Gül becoming president. They mobilized against the AKP, really leaned into the secular versus Islamist culture war, right? And in fact, you know, if we want to look at one of the factors that pushed Erdogan in this authoritarian uh, direction, I mean, one argument might be that it was always the secret plot, but I'm more sympathetic to the uh, uh, idea that it was the outcome of, you know, an experience in power. And I think, you know, this the type of opposition that the JHP was involved in this early period, one that was appealing to the military, that was appealing to the judiciary to overturn AKP rule, uh, you know, pushed a kind of mutual uh, uh, radicalization. So the opposition was super ineffectual uh, and was just unable to have a critique that resonated with uh, uh, with people. And in fact, you know, as the luster of the AKP began to fade, the more serious forms of o- opposition to the a- AKP did not come from the formal parliamentary opposition. It came from, number one, Erdogan's former allies, the Gülenists, the 
this Islamic movement that had allied itself with Erdogan, that had provided cadre for the AKP that was infiltrating the judiciary, infiltrating uh, the police networks, that had uh, helped prosecute the elements of the Kemalist old guard during the um, during the sledgehammer trials and the Argenikon trials, uh, which saw the kind of a purging, or at least the initial purging of the kind of deep state uh, uh, elements, you know, some of some perhaps on legitimate grounds, some on trumped up grounds. So that was one area of opposition that began to emerge as the Gulenists fell out with Erdogan. They began, you know, using their influence in the judiciary and, and, and the police force to try and uh, throw their weight around, use their influence in the media to try and expose, you know, Erdogan. They, there was this case where they were exposing corruption between Erdogan and his son, etc. So that, that was one area of opposition. They shot for the king and they ended up losing, though, and ended up getting a plus. Another form of opposition was, you know, as the AKP, you know, was entrenched themselves in power, a lot of the liberals and and left elements that had at least been sympathetic to the AKP in terms of their program of democratic reform, well, those groups became increasingly alienated. That sort of trend uh, manifests itself in the street protests in, in uh, Gezi. And then uh, in, the, in, in 2014 and 2015, we see the rise of the HDP and Saladin Demirtash, who uh, was able to transform the HDP, which was the latest iteration of uh, a pro-Kurdish political party in Turkey. It's a long and complicated story uh, filled with too many acronyms for me to give you in the right order. But the long and the short of it, since the 1990s, there had been various uh, social democratic parties that were closely linked with the Kurdish movement. Um, and under Saladin Demirtas's leadership, he was a lawyer, young guy, quite charismatic. The Western press liked to call him the uh, Kurdish Obama, which I think is one of the greatest insults to him because he was actually a genuine reformer. He was able to, uh, you know, bring together an alliance which included the traditional Kurdish vote, along with sort of other left-wing and radical liberal elements in Turkish society, transforming the HDP into a kind of Turkish national party in the sense of one that had national aspirations and one which was an equivalent to the Corbyn's Labour or Syriza in Greece that had this kind of radical vision of multiculturalism, you know, economic reform. Now, that appeal only sort of really ever got like 13% of the vote, but that was like a critical blow, uh, especially in 2015, to Erdogan's uh, parliamentary majority. And the rise of the HDP is part of the reason why Erdogan moved away from kind of... Uh, reforming on the Kurdish question to adopting a more traditional hardline nationalist line. So we had these various iterations of opposition, which ultimately the AKP were able to crush. The HDP, although not completely eliminated, the leadership, including Demirtas, were chucked in jail for no reasons. Uh, when their, um, you know, when 
uh, HDP members or, or, or groups close to the HDP were elected in provincial uh, assemblies in the Belediya. You know, they were basically forced out of office and appointed Kayum, you know, like appointed government officials were put in their place as well. So that element was repressed. But, <clears throat> you know, after the 2016 coup, the referendum towards, uh, you know, a presidential election, we see Kalishta Oldu and the opposition more generally trying to be and capture an element of what the HDP had in them, capture an element of those discon, uh, disgruntled conservatives and nationalists who were alienated by the AKP. And Kilich Daolu emerged as a candidate, you know, as a compromise candidate, partly precisely because he's not this typical strong man type of uh, politician. Uh, you know, there were other candidates, uh, including uh, Akrem Oldu in uh, Akrem Imam Oldu, the uh, mayor of Istanbul, Mansur Yavash, the Ankara mayor, more traditional kind of like traditional strongman kind of populist uh, leaders. Kılıç Daoğlu has a kind of technocratic intellectual air to him, and um, that's part of his appeal because the opposition has seems to have rallied behind this idea of a restoration, a restoration of a golden years that kind of existed in the early 2000s, uh, a move away from a presidential system towards a liberalizing parliamentary system. That's one of the promises of the opposition is to move to a, a back to a parliamentary system and away from what they call the tekadam, the one-man regime. And so... For this particular moment, when people are kind of sick of the strong man, running someone who is at least, you know, on the surface, the antithesis of that actually makes a lot of sense. Although the reason I thought that he would run is because I think Turkish political party leaders have like insanely massive egos and they just never want to let anybody else be a leader. And people are like, no, no, it would be crazy if they let him run. And it was like, no, they're going to make him run. And I thought he would be a bad candidate. Right, uh, because he's been a bad candidate in the past. He's lost tons of elections. Right, he didn't run previously as the opposition candidate because you know people didn't really have much faith in him. But for this moment, where the people, or at least a significant portion of Turkish society, is sick of the tekadam, the one-man uh, regime, he fits the bill, and he, the polls look favorable for him. So let's talk about um, what you expect or what may happen on Sunday. As you've uh, you've alluded to the polls, uh, some of them, particularly in the last few days, really have suggested that Kilic Darulu is either within striking distance of a fifty percent plus one outright victory or over the line. Um, I, I've seen a couple that have put him over fifty percent. Um, which would, you know, uh, obviously uh, obviate the need for a for a second round, but that's still a strong possibility uh, that you could have another two weeks of uh, chaos. The potential for violence, as you mentioned, Kilish Darulu, there's reports that he's been wearing a bulletproof vest. 
Uh, so the potential for violence seems to be there. The potential for Erdogan to simply uh, ignore the results of the election and kind of fall back on institutions that he controls wholly election electoral institutions uh to try and uh you know do some kind of after the fact shenanigans the the argument has, for a long time in turkey has been that elections uh you know there's sort of the the liberal standard for democracy which is the quote unquote free and fair election uh the argument for turkey for a long time has been free but not fair uh not fair in the sense that erdogan controls the media erdogan can you know shut the opposition down if if it wants to hold rallies or campaign, but free in the sense that if you walk into the booth, you check the box, you can you're free to check the, the opposition box, and and that will be counted, uh, and the results will be what they are. Is, has that changed? Is there a, a possibility that uh, first of all, I mean, you know, it was that a fair uh, way to characterize Turkish elections in the first place? But but second of all. Uh, are we looking at a, a, a situation where the free part might be uh, might be taken away too? That's a, that's a really excellent question. So I think that's a pretty good summary of the you know general consensus on Turkish elections since 1950 is that you know by and large they've been you know they've counted the votes that have been cast, uh, but um, you know obviously these elections often take place under less than optimal or fair conditions. So, for example, you know, when Erdogan wanted to change the constitution, I mean, his initial plan had been to do it through a parliamentary, a parliamentary supermajority, but he was denied that. And ultimately he, you know, used the classic tool of the Bonapartist, which is the plebiscite. And uh, a plebiscite or a referendum was conducted. And that was conducted on, in the aftermath of the coup under an emergency law situation and, you know, who knows what's going on. And of course, as you noticed, uh, as you noted, you know, there's been uh, an AKP conquest of the media, as well as, you know, important institutions, such as the judiciary, the police, etc, etc. So, you know, that's, that's the, that's what Erdogan has in his pocket. But of course, as I noted at the outset, Turkey has a strong tradition of civil society. You know, hundreds of thousands of people have volunteered to, you know, monitor elections. You know, people in Turkey take the voting process uh, seriously. You know, Turkey, which, you know, is the successor state to the Ottoman Empire, has had a constitution. If if you see, the, you know, yeah, it had its first constitution in 1876, uh, it had its first elections in 1908. It has this kind of strong tradition of elections. People, you know, then it's not a new phenomenon uh, in, in Turkey. But, you know, obviously elections have always had their issues in Turkey. The, you know, this election reminds me of the 1912 Ottoman parliamentary elections, which have been dubbed the uh, big stick election, the stick election, because it was a kind of, uh, conducted under conditions of, you know, major voter intimidation, et cetera, et cetera. So we see this kind of campaign uh, taking place. But, you know, the question is, will, you know, the votes be counted? And if Kilic Daoglu gets the most votes, what's the outcome? And I honestly, I wouldn't, I can't predict anything. Erdogan and his supporters have a lot to lose. 
You know, they have persecuted their opponents. They put Demirtas in jail. They they've sentenced uh, Imam Oluh, the mayor of uh, Istanbul. They've you know removed uh, people. They've purged you know lots and lots of people. So they have a lot to lose if if they lose office. It's, these tools may be turned against them. So the question is, will they be willing to? leave office. And the other question is, is, you know, you to win a close election like this, you don't have to rig the whole thing. You know, there may be a selective rigging that takes place. The IKP may be able to deploy its uh, formal uh, power that exists through the various state institutions, as well as its, you know, informal networks, which include, you know, the party networks, as well as the paramilitary forces and mafia forces associated with their electoral ally, the National Action Party, as well as their other ally, which I should note, which is the Free Cause uh, uh, Party, which is the political wing of Turkish Hezbollah, which was a political organization that the Turkish state used to fight the PKK during the war in Kurdistan in the 1990s. So they have like some, they have some people close to them to do some dirty work as well. So I am not a betting man. You know, there are a lot of people who have a lot of material interests in staying in power. And there are a lot of people who, you know, fear that the fall of the RKP, who have bought into the discourse of the RKP, the culture war presented by the RKP, who fear that, you know, if Erdogan goes from power, the Kamalists will come back and and go back to, you know, persecuting them, uh, you know, like, Forced not allowing women into government offices with headscarves, etc. That was, in fact, an issue that Erdogan has raised in this recent election campaign. Is like putting putting the headscarf issue to a referendum, even though this is an issue that has been like resolved. Even the opposition is like, "Yeah, headscarves are fine." But you know, there, there are people who are terrified and not completely unjustifiably that you know the the Kemalist elites maybe they they sound like they've changed their colors, but maybe they'll go back back to form. So there's a lot of reasons for the IKP to hang on to power. But, you know, the question is going to be if Kilishtaulu wins, will civil society be strong enough? Will civil society be strong enough to resist that? Right? And I think that's an open question. I think that's something we're going to find out if Kilishtaulu wins in the elections. And even if he does win and Erdogan leaves power, that doesn't mean the end of the problems. For them. Well, this is, uh, this is sort of my last question then. I mean, there's a whole range of things we could get into about the implications for this election for Syrian refugees, for the Kurds, for, you know, even the war in Ukraine, uh, certainly the U S and NATO. I think that that may be on the whole best left for kind of a post-election, uh, once we we know actually who's won, or at least uh, think we know who's won, but what are you know looking ahead? What are some of the the key uh, things that might happen here? And particularly if Kilistarolu were to win, and I think if Erdogan wins, it's it's more kind of you know stay the course. But if Kilistarolu were to win, uh, and then to bring in the other side of this, which we haven't talked about, which is the parliamentary side. Mm-hmm. There, the polling still suggests that AKP and, and MHP may have 
a, a decent shot at a, a parliamentary majority. So Kilich Darlou may find himself trying to undo, for example, the presidential system without a legislative support or trying to change Erdogan policy without legislative support. Now, paradoxically, because Erdogan made this uh, made this a strong presidential system and diminish the power of parliament maybe that doesn't matter so much for Kilic Darlu uh but I'm, I'm curious what what you're kind of looking ahead to if uh if this happens and particularly if there's a a split ticket and and the parliament is not necessarily friendly to to Kilic Darlu yeah so there are a lot of x factors with the parliamentary uh elections I mean I think it's I think it's more than likely AKP will be the largest parliament party in in the parliament. But there's going to be a number of things. So, for example, will AKP and MHP together be able to make a, a, a majority? Or will it be a, a hung parliament in which perhaps the uh, HDP holds the political balance of power? Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, it's there may be an issue with this cohabitation, but as you pointed out, there's a kind of irony of this that, you know, there may be grounds for cooperation if the AKP dominates the parliament and then Kilish wants to get rid of the presidential system. This may be some common ground that they can work on, uh, which may ironically, sh- the opposition might shoot themselves in the foot by doing it, but who knows, right? So there are a lot of X factors in this, election, uh, you know, you have several electoral alliances uh, uh, running, although it's a little bit complicated because they're not all, they're not all running joint lists in, there are some places that they run joint lists, some places that they run as separate can, uh, candidates. So there's a, how the parliamentary mathematics is going to work out is going to be a critical and interesting question. Uh, what this means for Turkish policy in the future I mean, who knows? Uh, one thing I think we'll see is, at least in the realm of foreign policy, I think some of the military adventurism of the Erdogan period, military adventurism, which was by and large less related to a coherent foreign policy and more related to the internal consolidation of power in Turkey for a variety of different reasons, that may be tamped down on. You know, uh, may try, you know, Kilicdaoglu said that he's going to be, you know, not so hostile to NATO expansion, but at the same time, he wants to try and broker peace uh, with uh, with R- Russia. So, you know, I think we might see, uh, at least from a Western perspective, a kind of more toned down rhetoric from Turkey. One of, one of the things Erdogan sort of relies on to shore up his base of support is a kind of quasi anti-imperialism, which is, you know, on a cultural level and a discursive level, which is, you know, yelling about the United States, Israel, but at the same time having actually like very pragmatic relations with the United States being part of the Western bloc. But he's, you know, he pushes this kind of uh, anti-imperialist rhetoric I don't think we'll see the same kind of rhetoric from Kılıç Kılıçdaroğlu, uh, in terms of the economic problems that Turkey faces, he may uh, revert to more orthodox uh, economic uh, policies. But of course, that doesn't solve Turkey's fundamental economic interests. It's just going to be 
out of the frying pan and into the fire, like from one set of economic problems in the country to another set of economic problems in the country. You know, so there's a, uh, so there is a lot of X factors in this, you know, the opposition coalition as well is, you know, ideologically quite heterogeneous, like how, you know, while in opposition, it's easy to maintain kind of a coherence in, um, you know, in, in, in face of a common enemy, but, you know, cracks have already uh, emerged in it. Uh, Maral Akshana, the leader of the E party, which is a split from the fascist party. Um, you know, she's had issues with her coalition uh, friends. She embraces a very hard right nationalist uh, uh, type of politics. And that's going to be an issue if, for example, the Kurdish parties are the kind of kingmakers in the parliament. The other issue is you have these uh, Islamist parties, including the, uh, uh, you know, including parties which evolved from, uh, that are led by former AKP cadre, as well as some legacy Islamist and conservative parties. So this table of six coalition is kind of ideologically incoherent and is really united by a kind of hostility to this one-man regime. Once we enter into, uh, if we enter into a post-Erdogan era, one has to wonder, can this coalition come up with a coherent future for the country? So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of unanswered uh, question. But, you know, at the very least, for those who, you know, are hostile to the AKP, who, you know, see another Erdogan term is just pushing the country more and more into a authoritarian autocratic system. At the very least, you know, him losing office may break the momentum of the AKP. One of the characteristics of Turkish politics is that, you know, many political parties center on a powerful political leader. And when that leader dies or is out of office, those parties become non-entities. So, you know, the, the Motherland Party was a dominant party in the 1980s, kind of just a shell of its former self. The uh, Desaper, which was the uh, a social democratic party, which ironically has allied itself with Erdogan. Again, once a leading member of a government coalition, now, 20 years later, uh, a non-entity. If it, now, I don't think AKP w- may go completely away, but without Erdogan, I wonder what will happen, what kind of uh, factional fights will take place, whether the AKP can hold together without their charismatic uh, uh, charismatic leader to do so. So, you know, it's an open question. So I'm, uh, I, I wouldn't like to make any predictions. I would just like to, you know, raise those as Questions that we're going to be have have to be thinking about following this election, and of course, if Erdogan wins, which he may win legitimately, like polls are not necessarily right. Erdogan does have people who support him. There are, for whatever reasons, a strong base of support of people who may grudgingly vote for him. If he does win, again, the the questions are, you know. What will we see? And I think we're probably just going to see more of the same that we've been seeing over the last uh, 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 couple of years. Just a continued uh, 
uh, you know, a continued kind of culture war politics in Turkey, which is ironic because in the early phase of AKP's rule, it was the JHP and the, the, the official opposition who were doing the culture wars, whereas the AKP were talking about how many hospitals they built, how many things they've done. But now it's like this endless kind of culture war. So there are all these open questions. And I, I as a so as a citizen of the United States, I have no idea what what that would be like an endless series of culture war politics with no material with no material things i yeah. mean that is very much uh, uh, in the 19 uh, 1950s turkish conservatives you know said that turkey was going to be like a little america and then like i don't think they uh, they realized what <laughs> they bought, what, what you, you wish, wish for, for. Yeah. yeah if you care for what you wish for <laughs> So, Gene, I, I want to uh, – there's one specific thing. I, I know I, I said that was the last question, but there is one specific uh, issue that I did want to get uh, your comment on before we go, which is the issue of Syrian refugees. Uh, Kilish Darulu, uh I think, has has said basically uh, if he's elected, he's going to kick him out. He's going to send him back to Syria. Uh, this is becoming a bigger and bigger social issue. I mean, there's an economic dimension to it, obviously, with a large refugee population. Erdogan has been moving in the direction of – sending them back to Syria anyway. I mean, he's normalizing or, you know, in the process of normalizing relations with the Syrian government. But I'm, I'm just sort of uh, curious if you think that, that there's a difference here between these two for that particular population of extremely vulnerable uh, people or, or if they're, um, you know, screwed no matter what happens, basically. I think, yeah, I think there are going to be it's going to be increasingly difficult for Syrians in Turkey because the discourse has very much been shaped by a growing hostility to Syrian refugees. Uh, there's a political figure, Umid Ozda, who is a former member of the national, uh, the, the fascist party, the MHP. Uh, he kind of split from that, but he's been a kind of one, uh, he's been a kind of Nigel Farage of Turkey, like a, like in in a formal sense, he hasn't been very particularly successful or powerful. His party hasn't been successful or power. But in terms of shifting the discourse on Syrian refugees, his his hostility to the uh, to uh, Syrian refugees has been, uh, you know, ha- has helped shape Turkish public discourse and the discourse of you know the major political parties in this uh, this country. You know, part of the opposition to, um, you know, Erdogan has sometimes been framed in terms of Erdogan Arabizing the country, bringing these Arabs in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, there's, in fact, there's a long history of uh, secular Turkish nationalists portraying uh, the AKP as being a non-Turkish, not, uh, uh, not really a Turkish political party. You know, opponents in the early 2000s used to call it the Arab Kurd party, so the Arab Kurdish party. You know, because it wasn't really Turkish; it was like an Islamic, Islamo-Kurdish fascism kind of uh, uh, combination. So, you know, there's that. But also, you know, AKP has a far-right coalition partner. They're also appealing to that nationalist uh, vote. You know, the 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 you know four million refugees in the country. It's a lot of uh, it's a lot of refugees. It has a profound impact. Uh, on the society, you know, they provided a, a very helpful pool of cheap labor, of course, for Erdogan's mega projects, etc., for the construction boom. But you know, hard economic hard times, right? So you know, who's the first to go? The refugees. So there's 
definitely a desire to <coughs> get rid of refugees. So I think that's driving that's driving uh, a lot of policy in Syria. You know, one of the reasons I think full normalization with Syria is the biggest obstacle is Idlib province. Because while the Turks might be willing to make peace with Assad after this conflict, uh, they can't really give up support for the Idlib province because if Assad goes back there, there's going to be a waiver for refugees. And where are those refugees going to go? Right? They're going to go into so the, so it's a it's an obstacle in their Syria policy. Uh and you know, it's a big social question in Turkey. Turkey is has a very strong uh strain of xenophobia and nationalism, right? Uh this is and those that strain of xenophobic nationalism exists both in the government coalition and in the opposition coalition. So both sides of this political coalition have a strong incentive to at least begin the process of getting rid of the Syrian refugees. I mean, you know, Turkey was basically bribed to keep them from coming to Europe. Uh, but, you know, Turkey is kind of like, well, you know what? We're not going to do this anymore, right? It, it and so who knows what is going to happen. But certainly I think we're going to definitely be seeing attempts to, you know, at least reduce the number of Syrian refugees uh, in the country. And that's going to be a big bone of contention as Turkey moves towards normalizing with Assad. Assad is, you know, he's he's beginning to be reintegrated into the international communities back in the Arab League. Making peace with Turkey is logical for him. I think there is, in an abstract sense, a desire because, you know, for Turkey now, the priority is not overthrowing the Assad regime, but rather ensuring that the Kurds in Syria are um, suppressed. But, you know, this question of the refugees is going to be the obstacle because, you know, Turkey wants somewhere to send its refugees and it certainly doesn't want a new wave of refugees to come if, uh, you know, Syria is allowed to take over the Idlib provinces as well as those provinces controlled by Turkey uh, along the Turkish-Syrian border. So it's, it's going to be a, as they say, spicy, a spicy issue. But both, both political coalitions have an incentive to, quote-unquote, resolve the Syrian refugee issue. Jane Bajalan, thank you again so much for coming on the show and helping us preview this very important election. Uh, and um, I think we will be having you back to talk about it after it's over, uh, not to, to give too much away uh, preview-wise, but uh, uh, we will, uh, I think, certainly want to do that uh, once we know how it's shaken out. Gene, again, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure as always. Thanks. 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 Thanks.